Now one of the important things about meditation I don't say uh, enough about is just how to come out from a, a meditation. Because meditation can become so profound and deep, the last thing you ever want is just actually to waste the beautiful peace and happiness and clarity of mind by just jumping out too quickly. One of the reasons that I just ring that gong three times is to allow your mind to come out slowly, gently. Instead of just what sometimes it was described at by even Ajahn Chah, my teacher in Thailand. Hi. <laughs> he used to say that uh, come out too quickly is like pouring hot water in a cool glass. It just it doesn't feel good at all. And that's sometimes what happens here. If you just bang a gong very loudly, oh, that's really terrible. It's one of the reasons why when we do meditation retreats, we often talk about noble silence. Have you heard that word before, noble silence? You know what it means? It means no bells. <laughs> it's terrible, it's like going to a school. Sometimes in some meditation retreats when I was young, gong, ding, bang. And there's something kind of wrong with that. Like surely, you know, we know how to come out of meditation, don't need to have all these bells everywhere, tell you when to get up and when to go to bed. So instead, Imagine when we don't have any bells at all. Totally calm and peaceful. I've done that many times, even on meditation retreats. People don't have any big clocks you know, in front of them. And you know, even if you've got your eyes closed, people always know when they go on a retreat when it's time for lunch. They don't know when it's time for the talk, but they know when it's time for lunch. You don't need to remind anybody about that. <coughs> Water in my nose. But anyhow, coming out from a meditation is also learning how to come out gently and slowly. Whatever you're doing, when you're relaxed, you don't want to destroy the best part of that relaxation, that feeling of happiness and, and pleasure. It's one of those pleasures which when you do find it, you don't want to and throw it away too easily. And then sometimes even just talking about the pleasures of meditation, finding out why. Why do you experience, why do I experience this meditation just beautiful? And just not really happy. My body is relaxed. Body actually does feel just a physical pleasure. Not exciting pleasure, but very calm, peaceful pleasure which is even more nice to be able to observe. So sometimes today, I was going to start by talking about the pleasures of spirituality. And I say that because as a young man, as many of you know that I was born in London, had no idea of any alternative than going to the church. I went to that church, but I well remember of it. It was cold, all stones, there was no heater, 
no air conditioner. Of course, they didn't want an air conditioner. It was always cold. And there was no um, upholstery on the pews. There were old wooden benches. You sat too long on those and you got a sore bottom. And when the priest would go and give a talk, would always be telling you, you're going to go to hell. It's going to be terrible down there. I get so many talks, I'm not quite sure when I told this story about the Australians, West Australians, who, a pair of them, I don't know what they were doing, but they both got sent to hell when they died. It was really hot down there. And when they were down in two weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I just. About the. It's rich. Okay, yeah. That's a good one, okay. Here we go. And then I'll tell another one afterwards. Uh, <laughs> this one, was that last week as well? No, about a month. About a month, okay. <laughs> it's called Golden Oldies. You know, when some person does a record and it's really, really a hit, how many times do they repeat that on the sort of the music channels on the radio? You get a very popular video, a sports match, like, you know, when, what's the famous sports match? Anyway, I don't know my sports anymore. But anyhow, <laughs> this was these West Australians. They appeared down in hell, and when they were in hell, oh, they were just given some work to do. They were enjoying it. It was nice, it's nice and warm, though, to kind of, uh, it's not like being back in home, like working on the Fremantle docks, working very hard. So they worked very hard and they enjoyed every moment of it. And this devil fellow thought, I'm not getting through to these guys. So he turned up the temperature and really hot. And then they thought, wow, this is like working up in Broome. It's nice and really warm, very good for your health. So they worked very hard, and the devil thought, I'm not getting through to these guys at all. So it turned it even hotter. And then when it was really, really hot, they were working their butts off, and then as they were working really hard, they thought, wow, this must be like working up in the outback somewhere in uh, Kalgoorlie, one of the mines. You really get a lot of money there, this is great. And so the devil then thought, the only way to teach these Western Australians turn the temperature down and he turned the temperature way down so it started freezing really cold and these western australians were even more happy they were jumping up and down for joy and the devil couldn't figure out what's going on so he said why is it you can understand when it was nice and warm because you're used to that but freezing cold ice everywhere and now you're so happy how come well said these two Western Australians, we always made this resolution that uh, hell will have to freeze over before Fremantle Dockers win the grand final. So that must mean that Fremantle's won the cup. Yeah, go the Dockers. I thought that was funny. <laughs> okay. The, no, the, the third story about hell, which actually has a very powerful message to it. 
So this is not so much <laughs> like a joke, but actually a very beautiful message. This was the story of this priest who one Sunday during his talk, there was one person in the audience who put his hand up to ask a question. And this person who asked the question was a potential very big donor to his uh, church. So you couldn't really ignore him. So he asked his question, said, can I ask a question? And normally you can't in a church. Here you can ask questions all the time. Isn't that true, Eddie? Eddie? Yeah, you can. <laughs> 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 you can ask a question all the time. Yeah, but anyway, that wasn't the case in this Christian church, but this guy put his hand up to ask a question. Can I ask a question? He said, yes, of course you can. What's the question? And he said, you've just told us that in many people you have to be a member of our church, our faith, our denomination. Otherwise, when you die, you'll go to hell. Sometimes people say that. You have to be a Christian, otherwise you go to hell. So, is that true? Because, said this rich guy, you know, there's been many really wonderful people in this world. People like Gandhi. He wasn't a Christian. Would he have to go to hell? What about the Buddha? Buddha wasn't a Christian. Surely he can't go to hell. What about um, Nelson Mandela? Yeah, he was a bit rough when he started out, but he did amazing things later on in his life. Surely he doesn't have to go to hell. What about all these amazing, wonderful people? Just because you're a Christian, or you're not a Christian, does that mean you have to go to hell? So this was a quite a smart priest. And so he gave an answer, which sometimes I give, was, well, it's a difficult question. I'll answer it next week. <laughs> I've done that before. So anyhow, so he had seven days to find a good answer. And so they, on a Monday morning, they have a day off. That's in Christianity, they always have a day off on Monday. I never have a day off. I complain, where's our president? He's over there somewhere. <laughs> anyway, so even people think, oh, you're going to Penang, that's where I'm going next week, or Singapore first. You can have a nice holiday. Holiday? I don't have holidays, I teach retreats. Even when I went to Phuket in June, people said, oh, you go to Phuket. Oh, it's a wonderful place to go. You can have a nice holiday there. Holiday? Is it teaching a meditation and retreat and, and teaching at a conference? I don't have holidays. Even going to UK. That's where I saw you there last couple of weeks ago. Have you got jet lag yet? Are you jet lagged? No, how come? I was really jet lagged. Maybe because I'm old. But anyhow, just holiday? No, you work. We're working my butt off over there. But nevertheless, actually, I just every now and again I ask the other monks, have I still got a butt? Have I? I have, okay. So I can still do some more work. <laughs> it hasn't been worked totally off yet. But anyway, uh, so Monday, have a day off. Tuesday, he went into his library, looked through all his books. What happens to these really good people when they die? Surely they can't go to a hell realm. And so, 
but he couldn't find a good answer. So on a Wednesday, he went to see one of his friends who's a bit older than him, and the friend said, look, that's such a deep question. I can't answer it, but what you should do is go to the bishop on Thursday. Ask the bishop, he'll be able to give you some advice. So he went to see the bishop, he didn't get any advice at all from the bishop. So the Friday, go and see the archbishop. So he went to see the archbishop and the archbishop, well, I haven't got too much time to talk to you, only five minutes, and didn't really answer his question at all. So on Saturday, the archbishop said, you should go and see the theologian in the university. He's the one who can give all these answers for you. So he went to the university to see this doctor of religion, uh, PhD. You all know what PhDs mean, don't you? What does it mean? I never said that. <laughs> he got an answer from this, this doctor in the university. Is anyone from the university here? Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> he got a good answer, but he couldn't understand a word of it. Have you ever had those experiences? You go to these really, really uh, famous people, and they've been so much studied, they've written so many books, where they give you an answer, you can't really understand what the heck they're saying. So Saturday, the following day, he'd have to give an answer to this potential donor, and he hadn't got any answer. What happens to all the good people who don't follow that particular religion? What happens to them? So he went into the church early in the morning, he hadn't found an answer all night, and you have to face this person in a couple of hours. So because he hadn't slept, because he'd worried so much, he fell asleep. And when he was falling, as, as he was fall, uh, fast asleep, he had this dream. And in the dream, he was at a railway station. And he saw a train waiting, ready to depart. And so he asked one of the platform uh, conductors, this train here, it wouldn't be going to a place called heaven, would it? And the conductor said, yes, it's going there, it's leaving in a couple of minutes. Seeing as you're a priest, you can go there for free. So he got on the train, and after, it's only a dream, okay. After a very short time, they arrived in the station, and sure enough, you could see the words H-E-A-V-E-N written on the destination. Sometimes you see that, like Armadale or Perth, you can see the name there, so you know where you've gone to. Heaven. So he got out of the train, and he went to the first person he saw, a really strange fellow, dressed all in white, with a couple of wings on the back. Oh, come on. Is that your brother? You know what I'm like. And so I went out to him and said, hey, this place over here wouldn't be called heaven, would it? Yeah. He said, welcome. Thank you for coming. And then he asked, I said, how long have you been here? And this guy said, oh, I've been here for thousands of years up in heaven. Great, you're just the man I wanted to ask. Is there anybody up here called Buddha? Nope, never heard of him. I'm a Buddhist monk saying this, okay. Has anyone, 
anyone up here called um, what's that? Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, a little fellow, brown. No, never heard of him. <laughs> I should really train myself not to laugh at my own stories. <laughs> what about um, Nelson Mandela? Nope, he's not up here either. What is what's another other really great people who've been around before? But anyway, no, don't say I jump up. I'm not dead yet, so I can't be either place. I mean. He said, no, none of them are down here. And the priest thought, I've got my answer. My own experience. None of these people, you ought to be a Christian to be up in, in heaven. So he went back to the station to get, get back to the world. But then he saw another train on another platform. And he had an insight where that train was going to. And he asked the platform conductors, that train over there, it wouldn't be going to a place called hell, would it? He had to get, you know, the full answer. So the, <laughs> the platform conductor said, yes, it is going down there. So he brought a return ticket. <laughs> he don't want to get a one-way ticket there. <laughs> he, <laughs> he brought a return ticket. And in no time at all, this train sort of pulled into another station, another platform, and there was H-E-double-L, hell, he'd arrived there. But it was very weird, not anything like he expected. There were even balloons tied to the, the sign, hell. And he didn't need to go and look for somebody. These few people came right up to him and said, welcome, nice to see you. Did you have a nice journey? They never said up in, up in heaven. Did you have a nice journey? Was it very pleasant? And he said, yeah, it was. So, said, do you want something to drink? Do you want like a nice cup of tea? Or some nice juice? How about something to eat? They were so incredibly welcoming and kind. Just like when you come to the Buddhist Society of Western Australia, <laughs> people always want to offer you, like, was it a, a hot pot next week or something? Or whenever you, you have the, the party? Always so kind and welcoming. And he said, Look, look, this is really weird. What's this place called? And he said, It's hell, welcome. Are you sure you don't want something to drink? Right, sit down at least, rest. And so he said, Look, look, this is what the science says. This is what I expected. Well, I never expected that you were so nice down here, that you're so kind and so welcoming. But look, how long have you been down here? Oh, we've been down here. Again, thousands of years. And he said, is there anybody down here called Buddha? Oh, the Buddha. Oh, such a wise, compassionate being. <laughs> so don't string me up and dis, uh, what's it? Un discommunicate me, whatever it's called. Throw me out of being a monk. Yeah, Buddha, oh, wonderful person. What about uh, Mahatma Gandhi? Oh. Such a very kind, wonderful, compassionate person. What about Marcus, Marcus Aurelius? Even though he was an emperor, he did some very wise things. Oh yeah, he's down here too. 
And this man did Marcus Aurelius and Mahatma Gandhi, oh yeah, they're all down here. And they said, look, according to my beliefs, they should be down here, but this place should be a place of so much torture and so much pain and so much suffering. And then the people he was talking to said, oh yes, it used to be like that before the Buddha came down here. <laughs> And that's the answer. The place does not make the people. The people make the place. That's an important thing to know. A Buddhist monastery down at Serpentine, it's nothing much to do with the location, with the topography, with the trees. It's everything to do with who's living down there, the people, you make the place. The place in the world where you live, Perth. What is Perth? The people make the place. The place doesn't make the people. So that was, I thought, a beautiful answer about heaven and hell and about just how these aren't places, this is a place which you make. And that's another little by the side. I always do these stories. I do have a kind of plan at the beginning, but I always go off the plan very quickly. You know that sometimes, you know, when a person does pass away, where do they go? What happens to them? What kind of heaven realm do they make for themselves? This is more sort of theoretical Buddhism, but it's true. You can test this out in your meditation. The heaven realms which you may go to, you make them, you construct them as you want to have the pleasure or the pain. The painful realms. Why does anybody go to a heaven or a hell after they pass away? What actually determines that? What determines that is one's ability to enjoy reward, the ability to allow oneself to experience happiness because you've deserved it, you've worked for it. Or the hell realms, I'm not talking about the hell realms you've seen in photographs, not photographs, in pictures and stuff. This is what you feel you need, or you feel you need to learn some lesson. It's one of the reasons why anybody who in the Buddhist uh, cosmography goes into a hell realm. I always say this and this is just so true. The doors of hell are open. You can walk out whenever you feel you've suffered enough. And that's just not just like a physical idea of a hell realm. Each one of you who suffer because you've had some misfortune in life, lost someone who's been very close to you, been sacked from work. Do you suffer? The amount of suffering which you experience is determined by what you want to experience. How much you feel you should be punished. You don't deserve happiness. It's something which 
I learned just the insight of being with people and seeing them and talking with them when they go through difficult times in their life. Why are you suffering so much? The physical truth is there, but the emotional response, why? Why can't you enjoy? You've heard me say before about human beings, you'd think we'd learn how to accept happiness and learn how to understand suffering and let it go. But actually we do the opposite. Every time somebody is praised, every time, you know, you have, say, our president, thank you for all the hard work you've done. Every time you say, oh, thank you for all the wonderful work you've done as caretakers and happy birthday, Nick. Got it right? Yeah. Excellent. Can you accept that? Excellent. Good. Because <laughs> he's a really good student. Sometimes, oh no, it's just what I do. But if you can accept the praise, can you really do that? How many times when somebody thanks you? Thanks you, Eddie, for asking all the wonderful questions later on. And if you can, <laughs> if you can accept it, it shows that you're open to be happy. Uh, some of the experiences when I was young, decided I wanted to become a monk. And then going to the Thai temple in London, and there's lots of famous people there. One of the famous people became a professor, wrote a few books afterwards. This guy called Lance Cousins, he was also at Cambridge. And he, anyone who studies party, party tech society, he was one of the senior people in the party tech society. Because he was also at Cambridge when I was meditating there, you know, we got to know each other and I told him, I'm just going to go to Thailand in a couple of weeks to become a monk. He looked at me and said, you'll be back in a couple of weeks. That's what he said. And later on when I saw him, you know, still as a monk, why did you say that? Why did you tell me that I'll be back in a couple of weeks? And he said, because I looked at you and you were smiling too much. <laughs> That's what he said. I said, this is crazy, you're supposed to be a Buddhist. You don't know that you don't just go there to suffer. You come to a place like this. Okay, you do have to suffer sometimes when you hear the same joke again and again and again. But it's not everybody's <laughs> jokes before. When you hear them for the first time, and if you hear them again and again and again, there's always some little angle there which is new. <laughs> but nevertheless, the idea of going to like a church, a spiritual group, which is happy, where you're allowed to smile, where you're allowed to sit on chairs, where you're allowed to move your butt, you know, if you're sore when you're meditating, when you're allowed to actually to look after your body and be kind to it, where you're allowed to have this noble silence, so you don't have to be told when you have to get up, when you have to go to the toilet, when you have to do this and do that. You have the friendship there to your own body, the kindness. Why can't we accept that? When somebody dies, we can actually say, I loved you so much. It's wonderful having you as my grandma for so many years. I will never forget you. Thank you so much. 
you don't get sad. And that's, you've heard me say that story many, many times, but when it's real and it actually happens to you, it makes it much more real, solid. This, when my again, father died, thank you for a wonderful concert. It's wonderful being your, your son for so many years. Only 16, but I value that so much. You're turning what other people think is sadness into something which is meaningful and even joyful and peaceful. It's a special type of joy. Same as in a relaxation, you relax and your body feels so healthy and so good. It's a joyful thing. And you come here and if somebody is late, I don't ever tell them off. If somebody just goes to sleep when the meditation starts, thank you. We don't have that strictness and force which is unfriendly to people. I can never forget that time when somebody came in here uh, the beginning of the meditation period. Just over there in that part of the back over there, they fell fast asleep. And my goodness, did they snore really loud. But then it was a wonderful example. And I said, please, that's what they needed to do. Please let them snore. And I told people why they were snoring. There's a woman who was a victim of quite severe domestic abuse from her partner. And she talked to me beforehand. And she said she came in here because this felt safe for her. She wasn't going to get hurt. She wasn't going to get scolded. She wasn't going to uh, get hit. And of course, when she came and felt the peace of this place, she just felt sleepy. She was catching up on so many hours of sleep deficit. And she fell asleep. And I told the people who woke her up, said, no, go and get her a pillow, let her sleep. She needs that, that's a kindness, which is really important. So she felt she could. A lot of times, instead of controlling, we're friends. If you ever feel very tired, I mentioned that to you, that many times this has happened in my life. Sometimes I'm just meditating, I get up in the morning, do some meditation, and then I feel so tired. And I'm kind enough to myself. I ask myself, body, do you really want to go and have a sleep? Often it says no, no. But sometimes it says yes, I really need to have a rest. So what I do is I lay down. I've just been had a full night's sleep a couple of hours earlier. But I lay down and I know I've got it right because you hit this, the pillow and you go to sleep almost immediately. You wake up about half an hour, 45 minutes later, and you're full of energy. It's a weird thing, but I trust my body to give the right answers. And I really feel that's one of the reasons I've been in very good, unusually good health for so many years. Never got any COVID or anything like that. So it's because you're kind to your body. You know it, you understand it, and the body says you should do this, give it a try. And a lot of times it's just your body needs.
the hour or 45 minutes where you can just relax to the max and that's where the happiness comes from. So always <coughs> a good meditator, a good Buddhist should have a smile on their face. And if you don't believe me, I can show you how the Buddha described it. This is in the, uh, the Sutta, and I was just trying to remember the uh, the name of it. It's Dhamma, no. Anyway, I'll remember it in a, in a few moments. This particular Sutta, the king, King Persanadi, who lived right next door to the Jetavana Monastery, well, actually with a walking distance, went to see the Buddha one evening. And as he went into the monastery, he asked him, is the Buddha available? He said, yes, just knock on the door, you can go in. You're a king. So he went to see the Buddha, and then he started kissing the Buddha's feet. Not a very good, a good idea when you walk barefoot, but anyway. <laughs> so anyway, then the Buddha said to him, why do you always like coming into this monastery, the Jetavana Monastery? And he said, because every time I come into this monastery, all the monks and nuns are always smiling. That's actually what it was like in the time of the Buddha. The monks and nuns smiled a lot. And then the Buddha said, yes, that's what you can expect. When the monks and the nuns practice their meditation, and when they start getting insights, your happiness, general happiness level goes up. Which means, I know in Sri Lanka, been there many times, I have a nickname in Sri Lanka on my books. I don't know how to pronounce it in Sinhalese, but it means the smiling white monk. I'm quite proud of that. Because that's not just like a nickname. I have another nickname in Indonesia. You know what my Indonesian nickname is? Ajan Donut. You know where Donut comes from? They call me Ajan Donut because number one, I'm round. <laughs> number two, I'm sweet. And number three, I'm holy in the middle. <laughs> I kind of like that one as well. And that lightheartedness, that was a, instead of getting angry at people for calling me these nicknames, no, it's wonderful to actually to have that kindness, that friendship, and to be able to see people smile and laugh. They're understanding what this path is all about to get that joy, that peace, that happiness. That's not the goal as much as the, the path, the way. That's how to live a spiritual life. With the happiness and the friendship, which means you're valuing something, which is really important. What allows you to feel peaceful and happy in some of the most weirdest of situations, even in hospitals even when you're sick. 
If you're sick, does it mean you're not allowed to smile? If you lost your job, does it mean you can't be happy? I don't know why that is. Sometimes people, they, you know, they, they're told by their doctors they have to spend a, a couple of weeks at home. Ask for three weeks, holiday, freedom. Sometimes people just they want to go back and suffer some more. Have you suffered all enough by going to work? You can actually just go and take a rest. Get some peace. Get really healthy. Take the extra few days. It's one of the things which I was disappointed at. You know, I never got COVID. Lots of other monks did. I'm honest with you, I got jealous. They had, a, was it seven days? Was it or nine days? 14 days? 14 days. <laughs> <laughs> a free retreat. And really, I, I keep on working. <laughs> but anyhow, you, you can see the sort of thing which I mean. You can always see the positive side of anything which happens to you in this world. And when you see that positive side, it's great. It means you can be happy where other people are just miserable and sad. Look, life is like this. Sometimes you do have to go to work. Sometimes, oh, you do get stuck in traffic. I remember once just going to give a talk over in London somewhere and the traffic jam was so bad, it was about four hours stuck in a traffic jam going from one part of London to another part of London. So I was late for the talk. Was I disappointed? Of course not. I said I don't have to talk so much tonight. <laughs> Talking is my job. So that means I've got a good excuse not to do anything tonight. So, another time just going to the airport. When I went to the airport years and years ago, going to give a talk over in Jogjakarta, and the, the airline was, was on Garuda Airlines, it was cancelled. Not delayed, but totally cancelled. The next aircraft would not go to the next day. Was I disappointed? Of course not. Another day I didn't have to do any work. I could take a break. But of course, you know, the, the cause why Garuda Airlines was cancelled that day is in the middle of the bird flu epidemic. Garuda is the name of a bird. <laughs> I said the aircraft got bird flu. And I managed to actually to email that to the person organizing the talk and he said, thank you, because that was a nice thing to announce to people. It wasn't Ajahn Brahm's fault, it wasn't Garuda's fault, it was just, that's what happens in life. Even aircraft <laughs> get bird flu. That's the same what happened over in Sri Lanka, just last, was it June or sometime? Just you know, got to the air airport, put in his VIP lounge, which I thought, there you must be safe, all these other people looking after you. But what happened was that, uh, I think it was somebody else in the air. I better be careful what I say, I might be in trouble. But anyway, I got to the plane late. Even though I'd arrived, I checked in two or three hours early. But by the time they took you to the aircraft, 
you could see the air bridge separating from the aircraft. I missed the flight. Not my fault at all. But who cares? It's an extra, I think, 10 hours in Colombo Airport. They looked after me. Had nice food, looked after me, and got a nice aircraft back to, to Perth eventually. So I'm not allowing that to take away my happiness and my smile. Sometimes it's nice that in a spirituality, a religion, a practice of meditation, it doesn't just allow happiness, but it teaches you how to be happy. And you can check up on some of the, the monks and nuns. Is this real? Are they still happy, even in difficult situations? I think many of you have checked me out for many years. So, have I passed the test? <laughs> and why am I just making it up? Hopefully you'll understand that when you change your attitudes to things in life, whether it's disappointments, whether it's sicknesses, whether it's some things in life you don't expect, all of which happens to me when things happen which I don't expect. I don't get angry at anybody. Instead, I change my expectations. There's always something you can do with whatever you have to face in life. There's always some way you can make this meaningful. Indeed, that's one of the most important parts. When things don't go according to plan, when things go differently than you expected, you give it meaning. What's the point? We sometimes think, this was last week's talk, about all the fighting in this world. Does that make life meaningless when it's death? And sometimes people, it's hard to find that they deserve to die in such a way. What's the meaning of that? And the meaning of that is teaching each one of us, number one, to how to value every day, every moment. And number two, teaching us to change our expectations of life. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. It teaches us to be far more in this moment and to realize no matter what happens in your life, in the life of people around you, could be a big bushfire, a tsunami or whatever, we can find meaning in it. The meaning that we can do better next time. We can grow and learn. We can accept and understand. And that way we can create a better world for ourselves and others. It gives these things meaning. And maybe just to finish with, it's one of the very intense stories, so I apologize if this is a bit too much, but it's a beautiful story to end on. One of the last times, no, one of the times when I did go over to Kuala Lumpur to teach, then the disciples there said there was one lady who was very, very disturbed, and she'd been to psychologists and psychiatrists, no one was able to fix her or help her at all. 
And so they asked if I could have a try. And so when I started talking with her, straight away, first of all, I knew that all the conventional wisdom would not work. She'd heard that before. So I just made my, my mind really peaceful, very empty, with no theories, no expectations. It's sometimes what I say, never allow all your learning, all the things you've been trained to do, never allow any of that to stand in the way of truth. Truth is something which you can feel, you can know in this moment. Not in words, but just through awareness, stillness. <coughs> so I asked her what happened. She was well trained, not trained, but rehearsed in telling what happened to her. Which, please excuse me, it was a very violent and terrible rape which she'd had to experience. And that was the truth of it. And I mentioned this to you, a few people before. My response, because I was so quiet inside, I didn't plan anything. These words just came out by themselves. And they shocked me. What I said to her, I said, you're so fortunate to have been raped like that. You're shocked what I just said. At least I hope you are, because I was even more shocked. That came out of my own mouth, totally unpremeditated. She was also stunned, and I soon saw why I'd said that. Where did it come from? I said that you are an extremely strong person, very resourceful, very wise. You'll be able to find a way out of that very dark hole you've been thrust unfairly into. But, unlike others, you are going to find your way out of that. And the meaning, the why, why does this happen to me? Why do people do these things? The meaning you can give to that experience which takes away a lot of the suffering. The meaning is that once you have found your way out from that very dark hole, which I just cannot understand, I'm a male, I've never been raped in this life. But the meaning which you're going to learn from that is that once you know your way out, you'll be able to do something which I will never be able to do. You'll be able to talk to someone who's also been violently abused and say, I know the way out. And you know that, and it's real. You know the way out, you've found your way out. And once you've found your way out, you'll be able to hold the hand of somebody else who's experienced something similar. And you'll be able to be the one who saves them. The one who can take them out from that depth you know, into the light. Take them out from uh, real big suffering into understanding. The amount of service you can do is immense. That's the meaning. She was happy with that.
no one had had the guts, the nerve to say such things. But she got it. I must admit, I lost touch with her many years ago. But hopefully, when she started on that path, hopefully she took it to its end. To be able to be someone who would be a counsellor. Not learn those skills from university, but learn those skills from her own experience. When she knew how to get out of that terrible, terrible, terrible feeling, she could help other people get out too. When you give meaning to things, give meaning to tragedies, which sometimes it's hard to explain. Why me? Why does this happen? Why do people do such stuff? When you can give it meaning, then you have the reason and what you can do with it. And I can almost take anything in life. Once you have a meaning to it, you can find a purpose, something which gives it some value rather than just suffering for no reason at all. And that's where your happiness starts to grow. I've seen many people like that little heroes and how they use some of these terrible things which happen to them in life and they afterwards you, s you say to them like the lady was sitting over there a few years ago and when she was describing what happened to her and somebody said that's terrible what happened to you and she scolded them you've got no right to say that was terrible that experience changed my whole life. We grew so much from it. Learned so much. Became such a much better, helpful, useful person in the world. So whatever ever, ever happens to you in this world, don't think, why me? Find a meaning for it. Once you've found a meaning, be such a beautiful, helpful, great person in this world to serve others. Okay, so anyway, that's my little talk to you about bringing joy and meaning into all aspects of this spiritual life. I hope that was useful. Okay, so question time. Everyone's really quiet now. Should I tell another joke? Sorry? Sorry, okay. Did side or after the talk? After this one, okay. Excellent, okay. Any talks from the floor, first of all? Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> Go on, yeah. Okay. Ajahn Brahm, you talk about um, spiritual pleasure? Yeah. Yeah. So, don't you think, uh, what you, from what you say is, spiritual pleasure is the, the happiness and the longer-lasting peace we have, you know. And if you, if you go further, it's the, the bliss, you know, that, longer, that, that arise as compared to our human pleasure, you know. The pull of samsara is very strong, isn't it? Yeah, very strong. I don't know as why. As compared to the, the, the peace else. of uh, the... The bliss and peace of nirvana. Yeah, even just these jhanas, the incredibly powerful bliss states. That's one of the reasons, just like nimitta states, there's a 
before the jhanas, first time that happened to me, my reaction was, why has no one ever told me about this before? And the great joy of meditation is sitting there, you're not doing anything, you're not wanting anything, and your mind gets so incredibly powerful and blissful. Want to do another comment? Yeah. Ajahn Brahm, how about the middle way? The middle way? Yeah, Be the, careful saying the middle, the middle way. way is the way to, you know? Because the one who, this is a Chinese saying, the one who walks the middle way gets hit by traffic coming in both directions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think I told that last week too. Anyway, next. <laughs> Whenever my son completes the meditation, he says he feels heavy in his limbs. Please provide some guidance for improvement. And that's quite common to feel heavy in your limbs. Carry on, stay there, because usually what happens after that heaviness uh, disappears, then you get the whole body vanishes. It's just a stage of your mindfulness is increasing, is amplifying some of the feelings you have in your body, and that just means it kind of perceive it like heavy but not unpleasant at all. So just keep on going, and then soon your son will feel, feel his body just vanishing. Just left with his mind, and that's pretty blissed out. Two, how do I let go of an unskillful mistake and go back to the Buddhist path? He made an unskillful, that is still the Buddhist path. To be a Buddhist, you don't have to be absolutely perfect, but you learn from mistakes. Like a good example, I went to tell this story, I told it actually at the, the dana we went to this morning in Thai. They understood it. They said, you know those whoops? Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Can you try and find it back again? <laughs> I made a terrible mistake. I think I deleted all the questions. But nevertheless, about this guy, he went to a, an office party, Christmas time. And so he went to the office party, he drank a bit too much alcohol, but he thought, you know, what's the chance of getting caught by the police? It's pretty safe. So he was driving home and he got caught by the, in a police box, checking all the cars going past. So he knew he was over the limit, he knew he was done for, he'd lose his license for sure. So he just resigned his, to the fact that you know, he was in trouble. But when it got to his turn, you know, they asked him to get out of the car, not sitting in the car, he had to get out of the car to blow into the tube. And just before he blew into the tube, there was the sound of a car crash. One of the drivers was driving a bit too fast and went into the rear end of another car. And the policeman said, Sir, it's more important I check you know, this accident than check your, your alcohol level in your breath. Get back in your car and go home. And he thought he was so lucky. He came within a couple of seconds of getting busted. But the story hadn't ended. Because the following morning he woke up, someone was knocking at his door and they wouldn't stop. He had a hangover, still in his pyjamas. We went down to the door and there was his two policemen waiting for him. And he said, well, they can't arrest me now, I'm not driving. So the two policemen said, sir, would you mind if we went into your garage and have a look at your garage? And he thought, well, nothing in my garage, just my car, sure, no problem at all. So he went to the garage, he opened up the garage door, 
and that's when he almost had a heart attack. Because in his garage, his car wasn't there, there was a police car in there. When they said, get in your car and go home, he was so drunk he got in the wrong car and drove one of theirs home. They had an extra car at the roadblock and they were missing one. They soon sussed out what happened. He was in big trouble. <laughs> so anyway, I've got the things back, okay. I won't press the wrong ones anymore. Uh, that's an unskillful mistake. <laughs> and you go back to the Buddhist path in jail, we do visit prisons. I have relationships in my life like family who can be hurtful and sometimes intentionally. How do I deal with people like this, especially when I want to emotionally retaliate and hurt them back? Oh my goodness. Instead of doing that, you have relations. They have an old Chinese saying, to love the tiger, but at a distance. So you can still love all your relations, but you know, not in the same house, if you possibly can. <laughs> but nevertheless, after a while, when they're not around, they're not right in front of you, then you can actually do much more loving-kindness towards them. And that actually changes your attitude towards them. So, they can be hurtful and sometimes intentionally, that's because they're not perfect yet. They're still learning how to, to have kindness and learn how to live with other people. So, sometimes if that happens, forgive them. Just let them, let it go, forgive, and then wanting to emotion, emotionally retaliate and hurt them back, that just makes life worse. That's what, how things like you know, Israel and Gaza Strip start, what happens in Ukraine. These are family. People from all parts of the world, I think, are like family. You don't want to hurt them, you don't want to retaliate. So I try and be an example of kindness and smiling. And then people just realize that what they've done was a stupid thing to do anyway. What should I do when my lifestyle no longer resonates with friends? Their reaction is one of aggression, incomprehension. Should I attempt to explain, live an example, or distance myself? My lifestyle did not resonate with my family when I started to become a monk. Even my mother, you know, she was surprised at me. She said, son, I always ask, I know I had really long hair when I was young, I always ask you to get your hair cut. <laughs> I said, well, mum, I did that. <laughs> said, That's not what I meant, said my mother. And my lifestyle, I had a very good degree from Cambridge. And a lot of my friends and family said, you're wasting your education. I didn't think like that. My lifestyle didn't resonate with my friends. It certainly never resonated with my brother. He was a banker and I was a monk. He did actually confess that he never told uh, the people employing him what his brother did. As a monk with no money at all, that would be bad for his career. But after a while, he was really proud of me. Incomprehension, yes, but a lot of time people want to learn more about the world understand more. It doesn't matter how wise and how uh, educated you are, we always should be open to learning more. So you find something which is incomprehensible, then you expand your mind to be able to include what you couldn't put in before. 
Should I attempt to explain, live an example, or distance myself? All three. In other words, choose different options for different times. But in the end, if it's with your friends and relations, you should never be aggressive, because after a while, they get the message, you're a nice, kind person. Now, all the, the men and women have become monks or nuns. Now, because I'm senior, you go and visit them. One of the things which I did this time over in UK was go and visit um, Venerable Chanda's family. And Venerable Chanda was really amazed just how you know, they really warmed to me. Now, because I'm not their child, I'm another example of a monastic. You know, Chanda is you know, their, their daughter or their cousin or their sister or something. I'm just outside of the family. I can give an example of this is just you know, where your daughter's going to be after a few years. And they're kind of impressed with that. So don't get, have aggression or incomprehension. You just you know, you try to fit in as much as you can and you teach by example. Last question, if anatta, you know what anatta means, don't you? That's a word in England. You're a nutter. <laughs> that means you're something wrong in the head. <laughs> no, that's that's not what it really means. Anatta means no permanent essence inside. If anatta teaches about non-self and that everything we perceive ourselves to be will vanish, how to keep inspiration to do good and not to fall into nihilism? Nihilism, when there's nothing there at all, we understand that that which we take to be a self is a process. It's not just not existing. There's something there. It's a process, and the kindness gives you so much. Sort of, it comes natural. When you're not concerned about yourself, who are you going to be concerned about? All other beings, and you have so much more energy to help, to serve, look after others. And of course, when you realize there's no one inside, you've got so much room for other people. Okay. Okay, once again, I've talked too much. So, we do the three sadhus. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay. You know what sadhu means? <coughs> That's one of the best translations. Awesome. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed that. I did. So anyway, we're now going to pay respects to Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, and then we can uh, finish the formal part of this meeting. And then I will see you oh, tomorrow and the next day, but after Christmas. Do Buddhists celebrate Christmas? Ajahn Chah did. He called it Buddhamus. <laughs> so, oh, happy Buddhamus to you all, and I'll see you before the new year when I come back. Happy Buddhamus. <laughs>
ังพากวันสังอภิวาเทมิสุวาคาโตพากวัตตาตโมตามังนามาสามิสุภาติพานโอพากวัตโตสาวกสังโกสังกังนามามิเฮ้ยเกิด